Well, often churches flatter themselves with the title New Testament Church. Their members are proud of the fact they go to a New Testament church. Pastors make it their goal to grow New Testament believers and to build a New Testament church. You know, I used to think I wanted to be part of a New Testament church until I read Paul's New Testament letter to the church at Corinth. These Corinthian Christians were indeed a New Testament church, but this church was fraught with problems. They were a divided church. So much so, they had members that were suing each other in the pagan courts. Blatant immorality was being tolerated. God-given gender roles were ignored. Communion had become an excuse for gluttony. Spiritual gifts were being abused. Foundational Christian doctrines like the resurrection of our bodies from the dead were being questioned. And worse of all, love had taken a back seat. Hey, I want our church to embrace New Testament truths and see New Testament expansion and display New Testament power. But if being a New Testament church means being like the Corinthians, forget it. You see, the city of Corinth had a population of a half a million people. Immigrants from all over the world had come to Corinth, bringing with them every lewd and every wicked practice known to man. Corinth was an evil place. In fact, among the Greeks, the phrase playing the Corinthian was a synonym for drunkenness. Prostitutes were nicknamed Corinthian girls. Corinth had a sordid reputation. In fact, Every night in the city, 10,000 so-called priestesses left the temple of Aphrodite on top of the mountain, the Acropolis, overlooking the city, and they would hit the streets and alleyways to prostitute themselves. They turned tricks to raise funds for their pagan temple. Understand, sexual immorality wasn't just tolerated in Corinth, it was institutionalized as part of their religion. And yet it was in this den of sin that the Holy Spirit used Paul to build a vibrant and spirit-filled church. On his second missionary journey, Paul spent 18 months in Corinth. It was only after Paul had left that the problems began. For rather than influencing Corinth, Corinth was influencing the church. See, Paul had moved on to Ephesus when he heard of issues that were going on in the church, and he penned this letter of correction. You know, it's been said, boats are made to be in the water, but you don't want water in your boat. And likewise, the church was made to be in this world as a witness, but in Corinth, the world had gotten inside of the church. Well, Paul begins his letter in verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. What a surprise. Sosthenes. Acts 18 speaks of Paul's time in Corinth. When he arrived, he held meetings in the Jewish synagogue. The leader of the Jews was a man by the name of Crispus, who was converted to Christianity. Crispus was replaced by an enemy of Christ whose name was Sosthenes. This guy sought to stir up trouble for Paul. 
In fact, Sosthenes brought him before the city council on grounds of sedition. But his plot backfired. The Roman proconsul realized that this was a religious matter and outside his jurisdiction, so he dismissed the charges against Paul. In fact, the civil leaders were so upset with Sosthenes for wasting their time and using them to vent their hatred for Paul, Sosthenes was beaten rather than the apostle Paul. Now look at how Paul addresses the Corinthian church. He writes with Sosthenes, our brother. Apparently, Sosthenes had concluded, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. And he had been converted too. Jews in Corinth were having a hard time keeping a leader for their synagogue. All their rabbis were converting to Christ. Well, Paul and Sosthenes write, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Over the centuries of church history, people have applied the term saint to an elite, special believer who demonstrates extraordinary acts of faith. But originally, every believer of Jesus was called a saint. The word simply means set apart or dedicated. Heard the story of two brothers who stole their neighbor's sheep. They were caught and punished, and they were both branded on the forehead with the letters ST for sheep thief. One brother was so embarrassed by this brand that he fled town to hide his mark of shame. The other brother took responsibility for his crimes. And despite the stigma, he stayed in the community to rebuild a good reputation. Years later, a newcomer came to town, and he noticed the ST on the man's forehead, and he asked a local what that meant. The fellow replied, well, I'm not sure, but I think it means saint. All of us should live so that we're known as a saint. And then Paul writes to the saints in Corinth, but also to those, quote, in every place. That could include Lilburn or Stone Mountain or Snellville of all places. He writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. These are the twins of the New Testament. Boy, they go together. Receive God's grace and you'll know God's peace. Grace extends to us a right standing with God. Peace is its byproduct. You can't have peace without receiving grace. And then Paul continues his greeting in verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. And I love Paul's phrase, they were enriched in everything. Don't you know this is what Jesus does for us? He enriches and he enhances. He not only takes away the ugly stuff, our sin, but he adds to our lives that which enriches and enhances. He fills us with the good stuff as well. He says, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. God had blessed this church with a wide array of spiritual gifts. We'll talk about them in detail later. Gifts of healings and words of wisdom and discernment and unknown tongues, etc., etc., 
And Paul says that it's through these spiritual gifts that the testimony of Christ was confirmed. Think of it this way. The atmosphere always contains a degree of moisture. But we realize that fact most when it rains. And likewise, Jesus is always among us. But his presence is confirmed when we experience spiritual gifts. And these Corinthians were using the spiritual gifts that God had given them. Later in the book, we'll learn how that they were actually misusing and abusing these gifts. But never does Paul suggest that they stop using them. The presence of spiritual gifts were viewed as the testimony of Christ among them. And then verse 8 speaks of Jesus' second coming. He says, Who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And notice the reason we were called. Why were we called? The reason he saved us was by his grace. The reason he saved us by his grace is so that we can have fellowship with his son. You know, Christians do all kinds of we do good works, we serve, we grow. There's a lot involved in the Christian life. But those aren't the reasons you were saved. We are called by God. We were saved by God for one reason, and that's to have fellowship with his son Jesus. That means he loves you. That means he wants to be your friend. That means he wants to have a relationship with you. That's why he saved you, because he wants to have fellowship with you, and he wants you to have fellowship with his son Jesus. And then in verse 10, Paul tackles the church's first problem. He says, now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. See, the Corinthians had become fragmented. They lacked unity and harmony. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. There was a sister in Christ. Her name was Chloe. And apparently she had written to Paul and had told him of the cliques that had formed in the Corinthian church. There were tribes within the tribe. You know, it's obvious, obviously it's okay for us to have a circle of friends at church. Just as long as that circle isn't a closed circle. Our emphasis should be on bringing people into the group, not keeping people out. Finding commonality, not fostering division. When it becomes an us versus them situation, it becomes deadly. Problems occur when church members polarize. One group thinks that they're better or more spiritual than other groups. And the family of God becomes a family feud. I read the true story of a man named Paul Letts. Paul took a terrible fall, punctured his lung, broke a couple of ribs, was bleeding internally. He was rushed to the hospital. Well, while lying in the emergency room, Paul heard two doctors who started arguing over who would put the tube into his crushed chest. The argument became a shoving match. One doctor threatened to have the security guards remove the other doctor. Finally, the patient managed to cry out, Please, somebody save me! 
two other doctors had to step in and settle the dispute. And this is what can happen in church. God brings hurting people through our doors. But we're too busy trying to outdo or upstage each other to provide them help. This was what was occurring in the church at Corinth. He says in verse 12, he says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. You see, the church had divided around their teachers. They had gravitated toward personalities. One group shouted, hey, Paul, Paul is cool. We're into Paul, man. He preaches liberty. You guys are all legalists. Well, the second splinter, they disagreed. We like Apollos. He unlocks the deeper truths. We're more intelligent than you guys. A third segment counter, no, we follow Cephas. Old Pentecost Pete, you know him. You guys study the Bible. Well, we just flow in the power of the Holy Spirit like Peter. And the final schism, they thumbed their nose at all the others. They said, who needs a human teacher at all? Our teacher is Jesus alone. We take our orders from Jesus. And yet notice how Paul writes to this. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And of course, the answer to all those questions is no. The church is the body of Christ. Jesus died for us. We're baptized into Christ. The main thing in God's house is Jesus. And we should always keep the main thing the main thing. Once I read an awful story. I hope you think it's awful of a man who killed his wife and ran her body through a wood chipper to hide the evidence. As repulsive as that sounds, this is what the Christians had done to the body and the bride of Christ. Their divisiveness had chipped up the church. You know, it's sad when the church fractures into cliques that think they're more spiritual than everyone else. In Corinth, the pride of its members had attached itself to celebrity. Some were of Paul, others of Apollos. Pastors and Bible teachers are given by God to point us to Jesus, not to become a point of division. Jesus is our one rallying point. He is the commonality that's greater than all of our differences. Jesus is our unity. I love a quote by Edwin Markham. He said, he drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the will to win. We drew a circle that took him in. We need to try our best to unite, not divide. For he says in verse 14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. And here's a verse that gives me great hope. Paul confesses that he couldn't remember who he'd baptized. That he'd lost track. It's always so embarrassing whenever I come up and ask somebody if they've ever been baptized. And they reply, oh yeah, Pastor Sandy, you baptized me several months ago back on the back lawn. And I forgot. Well, while in Corinth, Paul baptized only a couple of believers. Apparently, he suspected what might happen. So he guarded against divisions over baptism. He writes in verse 17, 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And this is interesting here. Paul distinguishes between baptism and the gospel. Obviously, in his mind, they are two separate issues. This is important since there are Christian denominations today, like the Church of Christ, who teach that water baptism is mandatory for salvation. Yet if this were true, it's hard to imagine Paul being so cavalier, so nonchalant about the subject. He basically says, I didn't baptize any of you. I came to preach the gospel, not baptize. You know, John 4 verses 1 and 2 tell us that not even Jesus baptized people. His disciples handled the baptismal duties. Baptism is our response to the gospel, but it's not included as part of the gospel. The rite of baptism is important, but it's not essential. Remember the thief on the cross. Well, Paul preached the gospel, and not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul's teaching wasn't full of abstract theories or philosophical ideas or academic arguments. He heralded the cross of Christ. Paul declared what was seen in the first century as a brutal reality. When the Corinthians heard him speak of the cross, there would have been an initial repulsion, a resistance to that idea. See, Roman crosses were bloody and barbaric. Crucifixions were rated R for violence. The cross was indeed a harsh message. Paul says he didn't soften the blow. He proclaimed Christ crucified. This is what our sin deserved. This is what the love of God willingly suffered. Paul allowed the message of the cross to smack us right between the eyes. It was an affront to our human sensibilities. He says in verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The Jews were impressed with power. The Greeks were into philosophy. And the cross was an affront to them both. That the Almighty would subject himself to death appears foolish, even weak in human eyes. God went out of his way to save us in a way that insulted the sources of our pride, both strength and wisdom. And he tells us why, for it is written, And here he quotes Isaiah 29. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In essence, you can think of it that God packaged his glorious heavenly salvation in a brown paper sack. Something so glorious in something we would never recognize as such. See, rather than appeal to human tastes and human values, the cross mocked them. The Greeks were into wisdom. And the Jewish heroes all exhibited power. Yet the cross appealed to to neither wisdom nor power. For God to die, it seemed like a mistake, a defeat, not wisdom, 
For the Almighty to subject himself to a cross, it appeared foolish and weak. And yet God worked in a way that contradicted human values. See, the cross forces us all to humble ourselves. To come to God on his terms, not on ours. He says in verse 22, For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. To the Jews, a martyred Messiah was a stumbling block. The Greek word was scandalon, or scandal. To think that God would hang from a cross was sheer scandalous, even blasphemous to the Jews. And to the Greeks, it was preposterous. It made no sense to them. The Jews would have preferred a salvation that came through strength and power. They were into power. Samson and David and the mighty men of the Old Testament. The Greeks would have been drawn to a salvation that came through wisdom, for they valued their philosophers. Both would have liked to be saved by traits that they valued and even idolized. But the cross is about love and sacrifice and humility. And you see, these are the doors to God through which he knows that we haughty humans need to enter. Thus, God devised salvation so that it requires a humble heart and a simple faith. He says, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross is God's secret weapon. Human values like brains and brawn and beauty, they all bow before God at the cross. He chooses chooses to save us in a way that defies all three. What is foolish and weak to us is the power of God. And that's the way he intended it. Once it was a seminary founded by godly men. They had a stone arch over its entrance. It was engraved with the words, We preach Christ crucified. Well, in time, the ivy grew up and it grew over the arch until the greenery covered the word crucified so that the arch simply read, We preach Christ But over the years, the ivy kept growing until it covered up the word Christ so that today the arch simply says, we preach. And this is analogous of what's happened to the modern church. We've gone from preaching Christ crucified to feel-good sermons. We've lost confidence in the cross, and thus we've been emptied of the power and wisdom of God. At some point, the church tried to sanitize Christianity. You know, clean up all the blood and gore. Make Christianity more acceptable to human tastes and values. To not offend, we stopped talking about sin and the need for the cross. We spoke only of Jesus' humanitarianism and his kindness. We substituted cute anecdotes for the message of the cross. And today's Christianity, as a result, lacks power. We have forgotten that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The cross mocks human values and attacks human pride. And so does the church. For the church consists of people that God has called out from the world. But rather than choose the powerful and the beautiful, God has filled his church 
with nobodies. And as proof, Paul points to the Corinthian believers themselves. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. When Paul looked out over the congregation, he saw ex-slaves and people of the poor and the poverty-stricken people, the people of no social standing at all. The church was full of nobodies, but God had chosen them. They were the ones that God had chosen to be his children. He said, not many wise, not many noble. I heard once the Queen of England, she was asked how she was converted to Christ. She replied, by an M. I was saved by an M. When asked what she meant, she said, I'm thankful God said not many noble rather than not any noble. She was saved by an M. But on the whole, God chose the foolish to confound the wise. He says in verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. God chooses the simple, not the smart. The weak, not the strong. The humble, not the noble. And why? Well, the answer is in verse 29. That no flesh should glory in his presence. So that all the glory goes to God. He wants to make it clear that his salvation is of mercy, not merit. You know, today people still admire wisdom and power and privilege. And that's why God chooses the cross For it is an affront to all three. And this is why he has chosen the church. For the type of people God chooses also baffles our reasons and undermines our notions of power and turns upside down our concepts of rank. God chooses not the smart, but the simple. Not the mighty, but the frail. Not the upper crust, but the down and out. He makes sure that every knee bows before him and no flesh glories in his presence. You could say that our great God uses the bottom of the barrel to show that he's on top of the world. And then he says in verse 30, But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Here Paul quotes Jeremiah chapter 9, and he says, It's Jesus that has become my wisdom and my righteousness and my sanctification and my redemption. Jesus is my all in all. I boast in him. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24, a passage from which he quotes, the fuller text reads, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. All that we are and do and ever hope to be is because of our Lord Jesus. To Christ be the glory. Chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. Now Paul is staying consistent with his theme here. 
God works in ways that deliberately mock our pride and force us toward humility. He's talked about the cross. He's talked about the church. And now he turns to the courier himself. Paul speaks of the messenger and his ministry as an example of how God works in ways contrary to human smarts and strength and status and skill. In chapter 2, Paul describes the methods of his own ministry, how he relied on simplicity of speech and in the power outside of himself in God's spirit to convey the gospel and in the sharing of the gospel. You know, once there was a church that had a painting of the crucifixion right behind the pulpit. The pastor was a big man, unlike a skinny guy like me. And so he would always block the people's view. Well, one Sunday, the pastor was absent. And and in reference to the pastor, one of the children said to his mother, where's the guy who stands so we can't see Jesus? Well, Paul always tried to avoid that being said of him. For rather than rely on his oratory skill or his keen insights or his slick methods, Paul's goal was simply to point people to Jesus. A pastor's worst mistake is to use the pulpit for self-promotion or to show off. Don't ever block anyone's view of Jesus. For he says in verse 2, For I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now it's often said, timing is everything. And here timing, the timing of Paul's writing may help us to understand its interpretation. Remember, Paul came to Corinth immediately after he had visited Mars Hill in Athens. You remember there, he tried to reason with the philosophers of ancient Greece, but with very little success. It seems he came to Corinth with a different strategy. Rather than argue philosophy as he had done in Athens, in Corinth, he chose to proclaim Christ crucified. See, he writes on, I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul didn't rely on eloquence or intelligence when he came to Corinth. In fact, he made a point of being plain. He preached Christ crucified, not himself amplified. And yet miracles flowed from this trembling little specimen of a man. And it was obvious to everyone who saw him that Paul's power came from the Spirit of God, not from Paul. Helena Mojeska was a famous actress at the turn of the 20th century. Once at a party, she was asked to perform. So she presented an amazing oratory in her native Polish tongue. The crowd was riveted to her every word. It was beautiful. Her presentation was powerful, emotion-packed, soul-stirring. It was later revealed that all that Majeska had done was recite the Polish alphabet. And you know, there are preachers who impress us with their oratory, but they don't really say anything. They can say nothing better than anybody's ever said nothing before. See, Paul had waxed eloquent among the Athenians. and got him nowhere. 
I'm not saying he made a mistake in Athens. There's a time and a place for philosophical argument. But Athens had taught Paul an important lesson. At the crux of a person's salvation is Christ crucified. A person can have all his intellectual questions answered, but without facing the cross of Jesus, he remains unmoved. On the other hand, a doubter can come full of skepticism and yet be shaken to his or her core by the power of the cross. The crux is the cross. This is what we need to emphasize in our sharing and in our preaching. When Paul came to Corinth, he was weak physically and he was drained emotionally. Constant opposition had rattled the apostle. Fear was threatening his faith. But in Acts 18, we're told that while in Corinth, Paul received a night vision. God came to the rescue. God came to Paul and spoke to him and assured Paul of his protection. In Corinth, Paul didn't present himself powerfully and persuasively. He preached the simple gospel, and it was the Holy Spirit who demonstrated his power. Paul reminded the Corinthians of his style and its purpose in verse 5. He says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. Paul grew weary of the wisdom spouted by this world. He learned to trust in God's power over human wisdom. Man's wisdom surely comes to nothing. It fades and ultimately fails. He says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul is saying that God's wisdom has never been conventional thought among men. Men don't think the way God thinks. Strength through weakness? Wisdom through foolishness? Riches through poverty, healing through suffering, life through death, victory through defeat. Is this how you've planned to map out the rest of your life? Of course not. The paradox of the cross is illogical to men. That we knew nothing of God's wisdom was most apparent the day the Jewish leaders called out for Jesus Christ to be executed when they called for his shed blood, once and for all, we knew that man knows nothing. Totally ignorant of God's ways and wisdom. Verse 9 quotes Isaiah 64. He says, But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Usually we hear these words at a funeral where it gets applied to the wonders of heaven. You know, eye has not seen. And certainly heaven will be wonderful. But what this verse is really speaking of is life right now. God loves to surprise us. He has blessings prepared for us. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. Only These blessings can only be discerned by His Spirit. What we have experienced so far pales in comparison to what God still has for us if we learn to walk by faith. For it's through His Spirit that God conveys His blessings. Verse 10. He says, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, 
Yes, the deep things of God. Imagine this. God is broadcasting amazing things for pure spiritual eyes to see, but you've got to be tuned in to the right channel. If your thinking is stuck on material concerns, if you think merely on a physical level, you're going to miss out on the truths of God's Spirit. This is why we need to be spiritually minded. He says, For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Realize God is known on a spiritual level. Today, your body, your body language, your facial expressions might convey to me that you're actually interested in what I'm saying. But your mind and your heart could be focused on the ball game this afternoon or the meal that you're going to eat in just a few moments. Only the spirit of man knows the mind of man. And likewise, only the Spirit of God knows the mind of God. And this is why, if I want to know God, I need to cultivate a friendship with God's Spirit. The mysteries of God are hidden from the mighty, but they are available to minions like us through the ministry of God's Spirit. He says in verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. Ever had an urge to pause and pray for a friend? Just get this urge out of nowhere. Ever been compelled to go out of your way to speak to a stranger about your faith? See, these kinds of inner urges can come from God's Spirit. We have received God's Spirit. And why? Because He wants to speak to us and move in us. We can expect His Spirit to be active in us. God has blessings for us and others that are freely given. You know, to me, one of the tremendous thrills of the Christian life is to be on the receiving end of a divine communique. You get this impression. You believe it's from God. At first, you're scared. You actually feel a bit foolish. I'm I'm going to do this. You're not completely sure that what you're feeling is from God. But then you step out in faith and you act on that impulse and you see God's hand at work. And I'm telling you, when this begins to happen in your life and you begin to act on it, your life will become an adventure. God has given to you His Spirit so that He can communicate to you by His Spirit. He says in verse 13, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And here is how you learn to recognize the voice of God's Spirit, by comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You compare that inner urge that you're feeling with the nature of Jesus that you're learning. Is this something the Lord would do? If so, well, then that inner urge is probably from the Lord. You compare the still, small voice you're hearing with the Bible you're reading. Are they compatible? God's Spirit authored the Scripture. They're not going to contradict each other. You compare what you're sensing spiritually with your spiritual gift or your callings. Does what the Spirit say harmonize where God is already guiding me? 
See, we learn to identify these spiritual subjectives by scrutinizing them up against the spiritual objectives. We know that God never contradicts himself. Thus, if your inner prompting doesn't reflect Jesus, or if it contradicts his word, then you know it's not from God. He goes on, he says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Paul's been talking about the spiritual man, the person who is in tune with God's Spirit. But there's a natural man, and this natural man is limited. He lacks God's Spirit. The mind of man, unaided by God's Spirit, can't explore the things of God. The natural man is deaf to spiritual communiques. He or she is earthbound in their deliberations. They're limited to their own resources. A whole spiritual dimension is closed off to the natural man, to him or her. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Since a spiritual man has access to resources unavailable to this natural man, he or she will no doubt be misunderstood or, or rejected. This is why it's so frustrating to share what God's doing in your heart with a lost friend or a spouse who's not a Christian. It just doesn't compute with them. They're not privy to the same information and sensitivities that are available to you. He says in verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. If I don't blow you away, nothing will. We have the mind of Christ. The Phillips translation renders verse 16. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Incredible as it may sound, we who are spiritual have the very thoughts of Christ. What a marvelous concept that we have the very thoughts of Christ. Don't think you've got to turn off your mind and enter some kind of trance-like state to communicate with God's Spirit. That's not how God usually works. God has given you a good mind. Some of you better than others, but He's given you a pretty good mind. His Spirit now wants to enlighten your mind and enlighten your intellect. And through the Spirit, our minds become exposed to God's thoughts. We're made privy to heaven's perspective. Can you dream of a bigger blessing than we have the mind of Christ? The unbeliever has lost his mind. He's not in his right mind. But we have the mind of Christ. Now Paul's discussing three types of people. The natural man who doesn't know God at all. The spiritual man, who is in contact with the Spirit of God. And in chapter 3, Paul is going to bring up the carnal man. This is the man or the woman who knows God, yet lives as if he doesn't. And we're going to study the carnal person next week. And so... Same bat time, same bat station. Next Sunday morning here at Calvary Chapel. Read chapters 3 and 4 next week as we continue our study through 1 Corinthians.